1: erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator join me as i uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving god and we are not its favored children the heresies of radolf Buntwine, coming january 2nd wherever podcasts are available
0: ryan mccaffrey with ign we're here at the dice summit for 2019 in las vegas uh, we're up in a suite at the Aria Hotel, and I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, the great Amy Hennig, <laughs> longtime game designer, one of the best storytellers oh, in our in our industry. Thank it's you so much for kind of sitting me. down with me, Amy. Yeah, just,
1: sure. This I is great. I apologize for my voice. This is Dice voice. I don't usually hey. sound quite this... Hey. Much like a you know, two <laughs> pack a day smoker.
0: It's Vegas. you know, it is, out. Yeah, yeah. There's smoking indoors at the casinos oh, yeah, yeah, and all it's, kinds it's, of it's stuff. It's all bad. Well, but what, what is, you know, th- this is an interesting, this is my first time at DICE. You've been to plenty of these. What What's your favorite part about DICE? I actually
1: haven't been to many of these. I think until last year, I had only come for the awards. Um, okay. Uh, and that was fun. Yeah. But like it was kind of, you were in and out and then um, not a lot of chance to really socialize that much. So what I like about it is the fact that it's kind of a more intimate event than some others and that it's so easy just to run into people and have these uh, impromptu conversations. You inevitably make all of these connections yeah. and walk away with you know a stack of business cards of people that you know you can follow up with and it's uh, it's just a great I mean I hate the word networking it all seems so sort of <laughs> mercenary but it's a great place to actually connect and like have those kind of serendipitous conversations.
0: Right, that I suppose game developers don't traditionally get those opportunities no. because you're busy at your studio working on your thing, uh, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: totally. I mean it's usually I mean I look I'm 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 fortunate now to be kind of master of my own schedule and, and, and time and fate right now, but like, yeah, usually we couldn't really take the times. That's why we would just fly in for the awards and then maybe stay over and then fly home.
0: Yeah, and I was actually that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about next is you know you were years at Crystal Dynamics, years yeah. at Naughty Dog, yeah. some time at EA and now you've you've been on your own for for the last uh, year plus, year or two. So how, how has that change been in your life?
1: Uh, Look, I mean, I, I took, you know, the events with EA as a little bit of an opportunity to, like, maybe just step back and kind of just, like, take a breather and reassess and fill the tank because I'd actually been kind of going and going for almost 30 years. Wow. And, like, this is, I mean, to take a year off like this, you know, and, I mean, and, and look, I still haven't taken a year off. I'm... Like I'm, you know, taking contracting gigs and consulting and then, you know, kinda out there hustling and taking meetings and stuff like that. But it's been good because I feel like my own little crossroads inflection point is 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 this is the industry's, you know. Not to be solipsistic about it, <laughs> you know, but it's like I feel like my situation maybe in kind of trying to figure out what I want to do next is somewhat symptomatic of where this inflection point we're at with the industry. And so I thought, well, not only, I mean, thankfully, I, you know, I sold some EA stock right at the peak, so that was awesome. <laughs> um, and I had enough at the bank to just be able to go, okay, like I don't have to work right now. I can just sort of, like, you know, take a take a break. And then I felt like for all the years of my career that I've been taking things out of the inspiration tank, and not filling it back up. And so having a year to just, you know kind of just spend some time and like you know look around at the world read some books you know like watch some movies play some other games it's like it's been um, reinvigorating and then it's fascinating because because I'm unaffiliated I can kind of talk to anybody in the industry yeah. so it's been great it's kind of I feel like a tourist like I'm just kind of going around taking little gigs that interest me talking to people and 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 not even like trying to like hustle for work like I'm not even don't have the urgency of trying to pitch Anyone, I just have the opportunity to just say, like, what do you think about where we're at with yeah. the industry? What do you think is next? And be able to connect some dots. And
0: it's, it's and, and it's it's that good. and that sounds like it's also part of refilling that tank. It is it's, right it's talking to everybody because you get
1: inspired by other people. You know, and you start figuring out. You know, who are those people that are, like are really present and kind of spark your you know your passion and and, and imagination and you know try to connect with them and. And, and, you know, like I said, it's interesting because you get the chance to stand back and kind of see the whole matrix of the industry and how everything connects and maybe ways that, you know, even all the people I'm talking to don't quite have the benefit of, you know.
0: So you've been, uh, you're telling me, you've been toying around with, with VR, like specifically sort of zoning in on storytelling mm-hmm. and, and can can VR or how can VR yeah. be a good opportunity for that? So kind of what what have you found as you've just hooked all those systems up and, yeah. <laughs> and, and started to toy around with them.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, this, <clears throat> as soon as I, I left EA, I, I spent a lot of time thinking, okay, well, look, fundamentally, I want to tell stories, right? I want to tell interactive stories. Uh, what are all the new ways of doing that? We have these new devices and you know, new mediums, rather than just sort of turning the same old AAA crank again, which seems harder and harder um, to do. And so VR was a natural thing to explore. And um, because I feel like we still have yet to crack, you know how we tell good stories in, in virtual reality. The um, Problem is, I mean, it's still early days. It's you know, the business model is yeah. unclear, but it's been fun. I mean, I got the Vive Pro, and I got you know the Oculus, and I got the PSVR, and you know got them all set up. I got sensors everywhere, <laughs> and uh, and just sort of sampling things. And some stuff is, I mean, like some games like Lone Echo are amazing. It makes you start thinking about like different ways of, you know, kind of more viscerally um, affecting, you know, people through, you know, these these mechanics. Yeah. But, but the storytelling part is really hard. And, like, I would love to crack the problem because it feels to me like VR is in the same place that, you know, film was at, you know, in the, the early days where it's like, okay, well, can we move the camera? Can we do this? Like, what, how do we edit? What's the language of, of VR? Right. And I'd love to be part of that. Um, it's just a little bit hard to know exactly kind of, you know, where to, where to start.
0: How much, how much do you think the hardware is part of that? Because, I mean, like for me personally, I've been sitting here as a, as a core gamer going, yeah. these technologies are pretty cool, but, man, they're expensive and there's wires everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, is, does the hardware matter? Do we need, to, do we need more, better, cheaper hardware? Or, or do we just need to figure out how to work with what we've got?
1: No, I mean, look, it's inevitable that these things are going to get less and less intrusive, less intimidating, less expensive, right? I mean, pretty soon we've got the Oculus Quest coming out, and you're not going to be wired to anything, yeah. right? Um, <clears throat> and the fidelity will be what people are already used to. So I think as the technology improves, as the headsets get, you know, less, less imposing in that way and the cost comes down, I think you're going to see more people adopt it. It's just it's just interesting because it's kind of an isolating experience, right? True. And I think people often, especially when they're not automatic early adopters, they're seeking out things that are maybe maybe a little bit more social, you know? I mean, you see something like the Wii going back a few years, sure. you know, and obviously
0: the people, rock band craze.
1: Right, exactly. All of these things that families felt like, you know, okay, well we can do this together, right? And and suddenly you had grandma and grandpa bowling, you know, and mm-hmm. things like that. Like, well, VR is a little different. I mean, yeah, you can all go, well, let's fire that up and then pass the headset around. And, But, like, it's not like you're really in it together. So I'm not sure w- what changes there, whether, you know, something like AR is actually going to be more kind of inclusive and social in that way, just because it doesn't shut the whole world out. Right. I'm not sure. But, like... I think we're all waiting to see what that device is that sort of, again, Trojan Horses its way into our homes because suddenly, you know, it's going to be affordable and and have some killer apps that people want to
0: You mentioned Lone Echo. Have there been any other, for any various reasons, standout VR titles where you like this about, really like this about one game or this about another?
1: Yeah. uh, I mean, gosh. Astrobot. I just played, you know, obviously recently because that just came out on the PSVR and, like, there's something revelatory about that. You know? uh, somebody else said this, too, that it almost feels like the first time you played Mario 64. <laughs> and your brain kind of goes, oh, that, that's a thing, right? Like you're experiencing this f- sort of familiar interaction, but in this new context. Um, you know, it's all the ones people talk about, like Beat Saber, obviously. You know? and When you have something that's that polished you know, and that experience. Moss is amazing. Yes. Um, gosh, there's so many, I don't want to leave anything out. Well,
0: how about, you you mentioned to me, uh, actually, before we... Invisible
1: hours is great.
0: Yeah, before we got started, you were mentioning, uh, we got to talking about, uh, the, the sort of inner, the, the physical VR, the sort of... Uh, uh, enhanced VR, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. with like the, the Star Wars thing down at Disneyland. Yeah, you yeah. actually you worked with them a little bit on I that. I
1: did. Yeah, I was consulting with The Void for about six months, from like sort of May, June until the end of the year. Um, and you know, again, like I said, the gigs I've been taking are just you know, it's not because I'm looking for a paycheck exactly. It's more that I want to get my foot in the door somewhere, learn something. Yeah. Um, you know, be able to meet certain people that I think are doing interesting stuff. That is a fascinating problem to solve, you know. I think, you know, more people are going to be exposed to VR through location-based entertainment before they get to it in the home, right? And that may be the thing that converts them, because right. they might go, that was amazing, can I do this at home, right? Of course, the experience is different. When you have something like The Void, part of the experience is the fact that it's a sort of one-to-one tactile and sensory right. experience. physicality of it. You will never have at home, right? The fact that it's there are four of you going in together... The fact that all the walls are touchable, that you can smell stuff, there's heat, there's fans, you know, like it's uh, it's pretty pretty immersive because of that. But yes, it was it was great fun to, to, to work with them.
0: Um, what do you think, do you, you know, you, you've picked up all the VR hardware and you're, you're checking all those out. Do you hope to see Microsoft jump into the VR space on Xbox? Is it important for moving the VR medium forward to have you know, another another major console player
1: I, in it? Or? My, I, I mean, I haven't thought about that before. My gut says no. I yeah. mean, it's not like everybody has to be all crowding into the same space. Um, people can focus on the things that, you know, they're they're best at and, um, you know, you've you've got companies like, you know, Facebook with Oculus, like, I think that are probably, you know, going to be preeminent um, until somebody swoops in with some <laughs> other device we haven't seen coming.
0: What do you think of, uh, let's pivot away from VR for mm-hmm. a little bit, but, so it, Single player games yeah. are get talked about as you know for years now. It's like oh they're dying, but then like you get to the end of the year and right. all the game of the year nominees right. are many of them are, are, are narrative single right. player experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's that's been your forte. You've, you've you're yeah. one of the best in in the world at oh, at those you. things. What do you see as as single player games' role in the industry moving forward? As you know, games as a service and right. living thing, living games are are more and more the the, 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 the yeah. chatter.
1: Right, and then look, this is the thing. I mean, and I could talk about this for much longer than we have. <laughs> so we should do that. We'll do a part two. But um, I think the problem is it's not that single player games are dead, but, but some of the single player storytelling is less front and center, right? So sometimes you're getting the story aspect side card onto a larger experience, right? Or, you know, we say it's a story experience, and it is. But the games are getting so long and sometimes so complex. I mean look at Red Dead Redemption. I mean, how many hours does that take to finish? 40
0: plus minimum.
1: Right, so how many people are actually gonna finish that, right? And this is not a knock on them. No. It's a beautiful game, right? Um, And so most of us, myself included, will never see the end of that game just because we just don't have time. There's too many other things competing for our time and attention. Yeah. Even outside gaming, right? And uh, so that as a storyteller sort of fundamentally sits wrong with me. The idea that our medium just is makes it peace with the fact that, like, oh, most people will never actually see the whole arc of the stories we're telling. That's bizarre to me, right? So that the age when we could make games that were, I mean, in, in, in the non-indie space, right, make games that are six or eight hours long, don't have any other second modes, don't have a live service, don't have any multiplayer, they're just about this sort of finite, crafted... Narrative, interactive narrative experience um, that like, you know, sticks the landing and is memorable, that's a harder and harder sell, right?
0: To a publisher, if if not the gamer themselves, right?
1: Well, right, and that's, I think that's that's the big question I have is to the publishers, absolutely, because, you know, they're looking, and I don't want to make this sound mercenary on their part, but like, they're looking at rising cost of development takes longer, more people, more money, right? And all of our distribution methods have changed. We're not, it's no longer about brick and mortar and you know, putting, a, um, putting a box in a store. Yeah. So, um, and I understand the appeal of saying, well, no, we can create a service that people can keep coming back to, um, as opposed to having a finite experience that you know, maybe feels like it's aping cinema or TV. Um, but it makes it really hard to tell stories. Right? Like, story feels like it becomes. And look, and certainly not for games like God of War and Spider Man and these things. I mean, story is very important, but it's also sort of counterintuitive that they're still very long and it's there's like so many, like, you know, subscreens and open world qualities and all this stuff that makes it, you know, that you, you may never actually see the arc of the story. Um, and so that's why I wonder whether it's like, well, for people like me that are kind of interested in telling finite stories, um, is there a better place for us to shift our attention to, whether that's VR, which is why I explored it, yeah, um, and I'm still exploring it, or whether it's looking towards sort of our streaming future.
0: Well, I'm running out of time with you, because it's DICE, yeah, so you have busy, I you know. got a lot to I'm sorry. do. I and I'm so
1: long-winded, too.
0: I can't help, I have to ask you before yeah. before you go, and hopefully we will get to do this again, but... Um, your, the Star Wars project yeah. that you were working on at EA, yeah. we got to see about six seconds of it. I as, know, and there was a lot more as, of as it gamers. than that. I,
1: I see occasionally people <laughs> online go, "That's all they had." It was just like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> After you know three years, we had a lot more than that. So, um, and, and and it's a shame because I feel like I wish the door had gotten cracked open a little bit more. Obviously, Battlefront was front and center because it was coming out first. Yeah, and so we were definitely waiting in the wings for our chance, which was imminent, and then. Um, but I wish we had actually shown more of our content, you know, at like a, you know one of the press events, so that people, you know, had got a little bit more of a peek at what we we're doing.
0: So my question is, before you go, is just what were you hoping to achieve with that game? Because you know, and I'm not going to tell you like, well what was level four like, and what yeah. on a kind of bigger picture, you're yeah. again, you're we, gamers were so excited for that game because of your your resume speaks for itself and. Amy Hennig leading a Star Wars project—a single, like, whoa—that you know, that's that would be great. So, what was the goal for you? What were you hoping to achieve with this out
1: there? So, I don't think I'm breaking any news here, but like, obviously, look, I have a certain wheelhouse. I have a certain sort of tone that is my comfort zone, and uh, so, and and Star Wars, obviously, dear to my heart, it falls right into the pocket of the sort of kind of pulpy action adventure. I mean, that was the the inspiration, and so I did the same thing that uh, I did for Uncharted, which was, okay, you take, you know, we took these Pulp Adventure films and deconstructed them, particularly Indiana Jones, of course, and deconstructed them to go, how are they structured? What are the kind of the verbs? What are the requisite parts? And then how do we reconstruct that as a game in an interactive context, but keep that same feeling of pace and propulsion so it feels familiar? So I did the same thing for Star Wars, right? And the, the major differences. Because, of course, they share a lot of DNA, right? Sure. But the major difference was two things. This one might seem sort of obvious, but, like, um, the characters have to be a lot more improvisational. Not that Indiana Jones wasn't improvisational, but, like, really leveraging the fact that they were constantly, like, you know, the underdog, which meant they had to be really clever about how they use their environment, how they work together, all that stuff. So really turning that into a game mechanic that the player could actually be improvisational too and then the other aspect of course is that you look at an Indiana Jones and you know he's he's the protagonist the other characters are side characters and they're important but they're not co-protagonists in Star Wars those are ensemble stories all of them right and that means that all those other characters and you can look at all the films you can look at rebels right they're all ensemble stories every other character is really a co-protagonist and so that means, and then the only way they achieve their goals, think about Indiana Jones, you almost never cut away from Indy, right? It's true. Um, in Star Wars, you, you cut away a lot because you're actually cutting away. I mean, we would often use the Death Star escape as a perfect example. For them to actually escape and rescue Leia, You know, Obi-Wan had to get the tractor beams down, uh, Han, Luke, and Chewie had to like figure out disguises, again, the improvisational quality, yes. right? Figure out disguises and break into the detention bay. Um, you know, come up with this elaborate ruse, and the droids had to be hacking into the computer system to be helping them. So if you can imagine a game where those qualities were all represented in your cohorts, and that also they would also be playable, because you, if you were playing that, you'd be cutting between playing yes. Han, Luke, or Chewie Um, you know, Honor Luke probably Um, and playing Obi-Wan and maybe playing uh, you know, R2-D2 or C-3PO cutting back and forth with that kind of if you didn't do that in a Star Wars game that was meant to feel like a Star Wars movie something would feel off and you wouldn't know what it was but that would be it that would be it so fundamentally that was the DNA is how do you honor the ensemble nature of Star Wars stories and have this kind of I mean the code name was Ragtag that's out there it was, you know, this Ragtag sort of you know, criminal scoundrel crew that uh you know has to rise to a greater purpose
0: well, now you're making me miss that i'm sorry. Game even more but me too no it's uh we'll talk more i know i've got to let you go no, amy thank hennig you thank so you much. so much this was a real treat i all hope right. the rest of your dice uh goes fantastically yeah. you're presenting an award tonight. i am
1: i know with this voice
0: <laughs> so yeah lots rest more, up lots more honey uh and for more with the likes of amy <laughs> hennig and all kinds of the, the wonderful minds that we have uh been so blessed with to have uh, making games for us here in the games industry. Stick with IGN. Ryan McCaffrey with IGN. We're here at the Dice Summit in Las Vegas, 2019, uh, where the best, brightest, most awesome gaming minds in the industry get together. They they share ideas. They they catch up. And uh, I've got one of those minds right here next to me, Ted Price, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Insomniac Games. You guys are celebrating. Your twenty-fifth year as a studio this year. Congratulations, number one. Thank you. That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, so we're here at Dice. Well, you're, you've been to every Dice. You're on the board. What's your favorite part of Dice? As somebody who helps put these together and then comes and, and you know lives them out. It is actually catching up with Pierce here,
1: and
2: because many 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 of us have been to so many Dices, sometimes it's the only time we get to see each other during the year, and generally after a, a great speech, we'll convene outside of the big room the speeches are held in, we'll talk about them. And I think that's where a lot of great ideas come from. I always walk away from Dice with a lot of cool thoughts about what we should be doing differently, what the industry could be doing better, et etc.
0: I don't want to put you on the spot, but do, do any come to mind as, as something that you took away and, and took to a project? I think generally it's comments on culture. For example... Studio um, culture. Studio culture. So I, I've
2: been lucky enough to... Uh, do the Game Makers Notebook podcasts. And I had an opportunity to talk to one of our insomniacs, Brian Intahar, on stage. And he was talking about how various things went well and didn't go well in production. And those are always useful. Even though that was a very public event, it was a great conversation for me to understand what we could do better. And I also got the chance to talk to Amy Hennig today, and Kiki Wolfkill, and Shu Yoshida. And every every one of them had a different perspective on what makes their gaming culture inside or their development culture inside their studios great and I take ideas back to Insomniac from those talks. Awesome. What's uh any favorite things to do in Vegas
0: when you come here every year?
2: I'm not much of a Vegas person. <laughs> I don't gamble. I don't really drink that much. So uh I think going out to the restaurants yeah. is exciting because they're some of the best restaurants in the world here. And it's always surprising what you can find. It's expensive, <laughs> really expensive, but it generally the
0: restaurants work really hard to make it an experience. For yes. You. So I got the chance to sit down with you a little, what, four or five months ago, right before Spider Man shipped, and that, as a lot of us had suspected, uh, turned into a very, very big deal for uh, for you guys, for for the industry, for Marvel. How has life been since Spider Man shipped? Calm.
2: <laughs> it probably would have been a lot less calm had it not been very well received by the fans. So we were really humbled and honored to get the response that we did. And I think most of us now have had experiences where we've talked to a fan about Spider-Man and yeah. their experiences playing either by themselves or with friends or with family, and it sort of validates what we were going for, which was to deliver a positive message and to tell a story that people would would really identify. and how he rose from nothing to become New York's king of the egg cream.
0: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. by by any metric you choose. I mean is, is it Insomniacs most successful game ever or a studio with a decorated history?
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, I we've been very proud of all the games we've made and I mean from the beginning Even Disruptor, our very first game, just getting that game out the door was a major accomplishment for us. And then moving to Spyro, where we completely shifted gears. And then Ratchet, which had a lot of firsts for us. And the list goes on. There was Resistance, Sunset Overdrive, all of our VR games. Uh, We learned something on every single game. And so for us, while this game has been tremendously successful and we owe a ton of... uh, a ton of gratitude to Sony and Marvel, our partners on it. For us we learned a ton. And I think it's helped us evolve even further as a studio in terms of our ability to take on bigger, more complex games because we had to grow, not just in terms of our size, but in terms of our systems and production processes during Spider Man.
0: What are give me an example, like what what you know, because I'm sure you guys by now have have done a thorough post mortem on Spider Man internally. What you know, and obviously it was a huge success critically and commercially. What what are maybe one or two of the big kind of big picture takeaways that that you'll apply to the the next project for the team? Well, to,
2: to be fair, we are still doing postmortems, and so there there was a lot to talk about in yeah. terms of how we uh, what we liked and what we didn't like about the game's production. So I think one one key takeaway was we need to have efficient pre productions, more efficient pre productions, and that means knowing what the pillars are very early knowing which game systems we really need to build knowing what matters and what doesn't matter and what questions we can leave until later those are things that we've now identified much more clearly in terms of how uh, what's what's key when we attack the next big game
0: how uh, well has has the the studio uh, huge success here of Spider-Man. Has it changed life at Insomniac in any way? Either for, for uh, I'd assume, for the better?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're all, we're all happy that it's been a success. And whenever you have a successful game, whether it's sales-wise or, or ratings-wise or fan response-wise, it gives you confidence, yeah. right? And so I think we, as a studio, have even more confidence to take on the same kinds of challenges we face Uh, as the industry evolves. And as we look ahead, no question that what players want continues to evolve as well. They want bigger games, more complex stories, better meshing between narrative and game design. So we have more confidence to take creative risks and try different things.
0: It's funny. I had uh, Amy Hennig in that same chair earlier today, and she was talking about how you know, we, we were we got onto the topic of of single player games, which of which Spider Man obviously is, and she actually had mentioned Spider Man as a as an excellent recent example. And but she was she made an interesting point. I thought about how uh, you know something like a Red Dead Redemption Two, as as brilliant as it is, being a forty ish hour game uh, just on the, just on the single player side, let alone all the side stuff, is is a little um, as a storyteller for her. It's it's oh you know that's that's a challenge because it's like, how many of your players are going to see through that story to the end? So do you, ha- gamers seem to want, or, or say they want bigger and better and more, but you know, do, do you have to kind of be careful at, at Insomniac to, to uh, not bloat your, your next game too much and, and to try to maintain that focus on telling a story that everybody will really enjoy all of? I
2: think it's it's more about making sure that the game design serves the story and vice versa. So as no matter what you're doing in the game, if it feels like it's somehow connected to who the characters are, what their emotional challenges are going through the game, and not something that's tacked on, that's for us yeah. the goal. And did we succeed in Spider-Man and doing that consistently? No, we didn't. I mean, I think some of our side content feels a little bit detached, and I think that those are that's an area we can improve. And the fans called it out. And that's the kind of feedback that we like to get because we want to know what players liked and what players didn't. And it gives us something to work on as well. So in terms of overall uh, time in the game and how how big games need to be, I think every game is different, and it really depends on what the kind of kind of the the expectations you're creating for fans, right? If you there are some some franchises out there that already have expectations that have been set right right and so if you deliver uh, a fran- if your franchise has been typically 40 plus hours and you deliver one that's 15 hours long then yeah you got a problem that's a good
0: point yeah, yeah. Um, I want to go back on it to ask you a, a almost the same question I asked you a, a couple minutes ago but for framed to set a different way I'm kind of curious has has the success of spider-man and those lessons that, that you've learned and are kind of picking apart through your postmortems, ha- has the has the philosophy of insomniac or, or even the roadmap has, has su- spider-mans success sort of changed the course of of the studio in any way or, or or more just kind of reaffirmed that the course you're already on is the right one
2: I think it's helped us figure out where we need to put more effort and one area is in leadership training so when I we have a lot of leaders at insomniac from called executives uh, to department heads to leads uh, creative directors project managers and we all help work with we work with the entire team to make sure we're moving in the same direction and so during Spider-Man a game like Spider-Man puts immense pressure on leadership and shared resources and when that happens and when we start focusing inward on say the daily challenges it's easy to forget all the things that we should be doing as leaders more consistently mentoring uh, spending time with each team member asking, is, are, is everything going okay? Are there things that we should be changing as a studio? So we really spent a lot of time over the last year and a half doing leadership seminars, actually getting together as a leadership team and talking about what is it that we could do better as leaders so that our creative team uh, can move forward efficiently and smoothly without a lot of roadblocks.
0: So, I mean, we talked about this last time you and I uh, sat down. You know, I... Insomniac's been frequently cited as as one of the, the best places to work. You guys have clearly cultivated a a culture in which you care about and care for your employees. How how do you how do you do that across two bi coastal teams? A lot of communication. <laughs> so.
2: So, Chad Desern, who's our Chief Creative Officer, and Sean McCabe, uh, our Chief Technical Officer, are based in North Carolina. So they'll fly out to Burbank to make sure that they're connecting with everybody. John Fiorita, who's our Chief Oper- Operating Officer, and I will fly out to North Carolina to check in. And then we have leads and seniors from each team who also will fly back and forth. But then there's, there are the obvious ways to connect. There's Skype, there's Slack. We try to stay as connected as possible. And when we have say a department that spans both coasts we will have meetings with you know, like most companies do with half the team on a big television and half the team in the, in the yeah. room and we do our best to make sure that we're all keeping each other informed
0: do the do the realities I mean Amy was talking about this uh, when I had her here and, and it's certainly it's plain to see uh, to, to really anyone in the industry making triple-a games continues to get more expensive more manpower Um is will we be looking at, at the two Insomniac teams working on one project? We, now we going have more forward, than, or
2: yeah, we have more than two Insomniac teams. So we we, we look at ourselves as the one the two com- studios,
0: I guess, the two offices. Maybe. Yeah,
2: and we look at ourselves as one company. Yeah. right? we we share everything. We share culture. We share technology. Uh, we share processes. We we don't. We try not to think of ourselves as two separate Insomniacs at yeah. all. In fact, that's been the goal from the very beginning. So what we have done in the past successfully is we have had a lot of cross-country collaboration on projects. Uh, lat, the last Ratchet game that we released, for example, was a bi-coastal effort yeah. where we were shifting uh, responsibilities. And that was awesome because we have a lot of fans
0: of Ratchet in both locations. Sure. Um, what, is, what has Marvel's reaction been to Spider-Man's success? I'm very positive. I mean, I mean yeah, it's, I'm <laughs> sort of curious, you know, do you get, uh, do, do they, are they taken back, uh, back at all by by how well it's done? I think you'd have to ask Marvel that. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess. Well, I but, but, but that they communicate to you, I guess.
2: Marvel's incredibly gracious, and, and they, they have been fantastic partners with us. And from the very beginning, they trusted us with their most beloved franchise, and they asked us to give our take, uh, create an original take on one of their best franchises, and they worked with us hand-in-hand hand along the way to to help answer the hard questions. I mean, we there were definitely times where we asked Bill Roseman, for example, the creative director at Marvel, hey, would Peter do this? Does this make sense for the IP? We're planning to take some creative risks. Does this fit? And Marvel was always honest and open with us about what worked and what didn't. And they they and Sony, our Sony producers, were part of this creative team that helped just build something that we thought was you know a very interesting and different take.
0: What did uh, what did you think of of Into the Spider-Verse? I loved it. Right? How good was yeah. that movie? That's fantastic. And
2: I think that was a good example of of Marvel and Sony taking some really create interesting creative risks. Yeah. And it voided it strike a chord.
0: Um look so when you last time we talked, you you told me the story about how uh, you were basically offered carte blanche, which pick a superhero yeah. and go. And and you're saying that uh, Spider-Man was actually like the last one you thought of because, you know, he's he's been uh, done a lot. Yeah, that was what I. That's what I assumed, and that was that kind of shows my
2: my ignorance of Spider-Man's history in <laughs> video games because I. Didn't realize that it had been a long time since there had been a Spider-Man, well, not a long time, but there had been a good period of time since yeah. the last Spider-Man game came out. And so in talking to the team, and especially Brian Nintahar, who has an encyclopedic knowledge of Spider-Man, then it became clear that, yeah, that, this actually would be a good time to put out a Spider-Man game. Plus, we re- as a studio, we had an Infinity for who Spider-Man is and who Peter Parker is.
0: So the, the, the follow-up there is, now in the, in the wake of Spider-Man's success, uh, are you guys kinda going back into the, into the, the roster, the, into the cabinet of superheroes and going, oh, who else might we wanna go play with here? <laughs> we, had a, we had
2: a lot of fun doing that initially, looking down the big list of, uh, of Marvel heroes. I mean, there, I, I actually wasn't aware of how many incredible Marvel heroes there are and how many have just been uh, built over the years by the Marvel team? I mean, really, it really—it goes way, way back. Yeah. And there are some incredible stories. So we we kind of went through that process at the very beginning when we were looking at okay, who who do we think we could tell the best story about?
0: Um, what's what's is there like a surprise neat thing that's happened uh, since it came out? Either like a super cool fan letter or some like celebrity mentioning it or is there any sort of just extracurricular thing that that's uh that's come that's found your attention about Spider-Man?
2: The best thing that has happened so far in my opinion was happened today. Uh Josh Straub who runs an accessibility group uh gave us an award for accessibility for for actually building in controls that would help disabled people play the
0: game. Yeah. That, I think, will mean more to Insomniacs than any award we could have gotten. Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, the, the Microsoft, the, the, that adaptive controller they made is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's uh,
2: amazing. And I, I think the fact that they put that up during the Super Bowl was, was really cool. The whole ex- here, accessibility is important. Yeah. We need to help people who want to play games but may not have the same abilities that you know,
0: most players have. So I mean, that's important. You guys had a, a killer voice cast too. Was that uh, w- was that a pretty easy process? It, when the good ones <laughs> come, in, you got to know, right? I, I laugh because it's never easy.
2: And I think uh, <laughs> if you talk to Brian intohar, our creative director, and Paul Mudra, who is our audio director, uh, it, it, finding the right voice, finding a and as a group of actors who can channel the character and also be part of the creative process is tough. Yeah. Uh, we were very fortunate, for example, for Spider-Man to, to be able to draw on one of our longtime insomniac friends, Yuri Lowenthal, and he did an incredible
0: job as Peter. Yeah, it was just fantastic. Um, well, I, I have to ask, too, like on the sort of the business side of things, you know, you've worked a lot with Sony, we talked about that, but, you know, you, you are an independent studio. So, uh, since Spider-Man shipped... Has the volume of calls from other publishers wanting to work with you gone up?
2: Well, we've been very fortunate in that we have good relationships with a lot of publishers in the business, and I don't think that things have changed in terms of their interest in working with us yeah. and uh, the opportunities that exist in the, in the industry. I think what's particularly interesting, though, is as we get to the, the quote-unquote end of this console lifecycle – we're looking ahead to big changes in the industry, and it could be anything i mean what's what I think this year we'll probably see a lot of announcements about where tech is going in the games industry, and nobody I think can accurately predict where it's going to go what i what's important for us as a company is that we are flexible. We have weathered the various storms and roller coaster rides that have occurred over the last 25 years, and I anticipate we'll be able to continue doing that
0: what uh, what excites you about about a, a console shift, what would, what as as a as a just veteran decorated studio, what what do you hope to to see that these new machines deliver? That's a good question. So there are a lot of things they
2: could, and I could opine about that, but people are already doing that online. So that's <laughs> me sort of deferring the question. What I do look forward to, though, is just the continued growth of the audience, and I think that, I mean, games like Fortnite, uh, phenomenon in this in, in this industry, have brought in more and more players to our industry. And I don't think anybody could have predicted that. And I look at my daughters playing Fortnite and being passionate about the game and their friends coming in. And now uh, my 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 third daughter uh, is not really a gamer and she's not a self-professed gamer, but she started playing Spider-Man because she played Fortnite. She, Fortnite actually got her into she's uh, playing with the PlayStation 4, right? And she, And she said, oh, wait, Dad, but you made this other game. Maybe I should try this other game. And so... She did, and she loved it. So super, super microcosm example of what I believe could be happening across the world.
0: And then you broke down and wept tears of father. <laughs> like that's, That had to be a great moment. That's, it was a bonding was, moment with my yeah. daughter and me, yes. Um, all right, so Sunset Overdrive is a game that's very near and dear to my heart. We talked a little bit about it last time, but so since we spoke, it finally came to PC, Yes. which was great. A lot of people uh, loved seeing that. So... Does this mean that you guys control its future now, and is Sunset Overdrive 2 on the radar? Is it, is it you wanna just extinguish any hope that, I'll have, <laughs> that I'm never gonna play that game right now? Do you wanna fuel it a little bit? Just talk to me about that, because that is, that is a, a, a new development since you and I last sat down. You know, it's
2: funny that I've been asked similar questions about Resistance. Right. And I remember at one point saying, Now we're not gonna do another resistance. And then I said, That's stupid. I shouldn't say something like that. Because it wasn't you know, at that point I figured, yeah, there's always a chance that we might do another resistance. So never yeah. say never. With Sunset, I gotta hand it to Blind Squirrel. Blind Squirrel took our engine and our tools and created a beautiful version of Sunset Overdrive for the PC and, and in collaboration with Microsoft. So yeah. kudos to them and it's really great for us to see fans who didn't get a chance to play sunset or people who had heard of sunset get a chance to play it on pc so i'm gonna say never say never
0: how's that that is a <laughs> long-winded right, well, I'll, way I'll, to say i'll give it. you one follow-up though because it's you know I, I have a lot of xbox fans in my timeline i've covered xbox for a long time and uh, you know when when the pc version came out a lot of fan, xbox fans were like hey well how about if there's a pc version now can we get an xbox one x enhanced oh version, so you're sitting here, I'm, I'm contractually obliged to ask you about that. I think that's unlikely. Unlikely. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? I appreciate the straight answer. Because things cost money, right? And you they, have, there's opportunity costs for everything, I exactly, imagine.
2: And, exactly. I mean, we are, we are 200, almost 300 strong right now wow. at Insomniac, but it's, it's something that, you're right, it's an opportunity cost. What, what should we do? Where should we put our energy uh, when it comes to new projects, IP that we control, and those are hard decisions to make.
0: Um, all right, so you're. It, I think it's the odds are good that uh, your Insomniac's next game will probably be on the next generation of consoles. I mean, if uh, the timelines are what what a lot of people think they are. Uh, you know, you sort of touched on this a, a minute ago, but you know what what is the what is the the new tech that's that's going to uh, fuel everything. I mean, you know, is it? I've heard a lot of developers here at Dice talk about cloud computing, and who's going to crack that? And uh, or you know, do we just need more RAM, more CPU power? Is there is there something that uh, that you see that that's sort of key to growing gaming in the future? From a from a technology perspective. From a technology perspective, I can't really talk about that
2: because I I, I think there's again, a lot of speculation out there about what could be coming down the road. And there have been some announcements from big players who are outside of this industry in terms of where they want to take things. So it's better for me, I think, to talk about the kinds of features that we've wanted in games and hopefully can get more adept at, at least at Insomniac. I think that we love telling story driven games, big open world story driven games. And I think a challenge that we, we have is is answering the question, how can we keep players engaged? Players love these worlds. And what do we do to create figure out how to create content that lives well beyond, you know, the game's the game's typical life cycle. And people call that games as a service, you can call it whatever you want to. Right. But that's a, a production challenge given that when we build these really big games, uh, you don't know how they're going to be received, right? And so you take a big risk in committing to continuing to put out content afterwards. And we, were, we put out three episodes of City That Never Sleeps after Spider-Man. That was a massive effort for us because they were all story-driven. Uh, we put a lot of effort into figuring out what those, the storylines would be. The whole team was on it. And so you can keep doing that, but will the appetite continue yeah. for a while? Does it, does it tail off? So we don't have answers to those questions at all. But I think what helps, what I think I'm looking forward to over the next couple of years is seeing what other companies do, right? There are other companies that are in the middle of their production cycles right now that will be releasing in 2019, 2020 on whatever platforms are available. Right. And I think we're going to see how the audience reacts to those and what features other developers are taking risks on. We learn from that. We look around at our peers, we look at the industry, and we pay attention to what works and what doesn't. And then we take our own risks for, uh, further down the ro- road, but we take informed risks. Yeah,
0: and, well, and, how, and how has it worked? for How, how has uh, the appetite been for those DLCs on Spider-Man? It's been great. I mean, we've had
2: a lot of positive feedback from people saying, thank you for continuing the story. I loved uh, seeing more Silver Sable. I loved the Hammerhead you know, appearance and, and who learning more about who he is. So those are the kinds of things that help us... Feel good about what we're doing. It helps us inform us for the future. You know, what what kinds of stories should we be telling? How how should we elevate these potentially minor characters in the game? All good. Uh, yeah, they're all. It's all it's good. All good so, for you guys. So, yeah. Again, fans are not shy <laughs> about giving us uh, comments, good and bad, yeah. about what they liked and didn't like, and that just goes into the Insomniac brainstorming sessions about what we want to do in the future, regardless of IP, right? It all is informative, regardless
0: of what type of game we're working on. Uh, last question before I let you get out of here. Um, are, we, are we still gonna keep doing the console generation thing, do you think, for a while, or, do you, or are we heading for more of a, of a smartphone-like, iterative kind of technology future with gaming?
2: You talk to console manufacturers, and they give you different answers, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if I, I think back to the right before the PlayStation 4, a lot of journalists were saying, this is the end of consoles. This generation is going to fail, and there will be no more consoles after that. But the converse happened, right? Yeah. Sony has killed it, this generation, and has, I think, broken records in terms yeah. of the number of consoles Absolutely. they've been able to ship. So I don't know. I mean, I, it dep- I, I think it's driven by content, right? Do you have content that justifies a different approach to consoles and console upgrades? That's, that's my opinion as a content creator.
0: Well, Ted, thank you so much for, for taking more of your life to sit down with me. And now, now I'm fully caught up on all things Ted Price. From the beginning of your career, now all the way through past Spider-Man. Uh, it's just wonderful to speak with you. I, I wish you nothing, but th- your success is just so deserved with both Spider-Man and 25 years of Insomniac as a studio. So uh, thank you so much for your time once again. Thanks, Ryan. It's been and, fun uh, to be here. Yeah, and for more from DICE with a lot of uh, great developers like Ted Price...